Welcome to the Need More Buffs podcast, the unofficial Light Seekers podcast sponsored by DeliveryCrab.com. DeliveryCrab.com, your number one source for Light Seekers cards and three points of healing. Welcome back, Seekers, to episode 60 of Need More Buffs. I'm your host, Matt Sonnenberg. I'm his co-host, Frank Raisbeck. Episode 60, Matt. That's a that's a landmark, I think. It is. It's getting there. It's a nice brown number. I mean, nothing I really celebrate too much. I mean, we did kind of make a deal about 50, but maybe 75 or something. We can do something again, but definitely when we hit 100, and you know we'll get, we're going to hit that. Oh, we are on the fast track to the 100 mark. Especially if we go in two episodes a week pretty soon, maybe. Ooh, hint, hint, hint. Maybe. Maybe. We'll see. Anyway. This week we have a new guest, which is something I haven't been able to say in quite a while, I think. Uh, I think it's always good to say it, though. (laughs) A lot of ours have been returning guests recently, but this week I am happy to bring on to the show Mumbles. How are you doing tonight, Mumbles? Good. How's everything going with you? Not too bad. So you have been playing Lightseeker for quite some time now, but I, I believe you just recently got back into it is that right yeah i started playing about like a couple weeks before pax east 2018 so almost a year now but i had kind of stopped playing since october and just recently got back into it fair enough all right well let's rewind a little bit further and and just kind of since it's your first time on the show get get some of your background like where did you start with games was it board games card games video games where did you get your start, and how did you find out about Lightseekers? All right, so as long as I can remember, I've been playing games. Like, started with video games when I was still learning how to read. My first game was Pokemon. Okay. And then just growing up, me and my brothers, like, we used to play Pokemon, Yu-Gi-Oh, and all these other board games and all that. When I got into high school, I got back into Yu-Gi-Oh around, like, 2009, 2010, and I started playing competitively in, like, 2011. Then around like 2015 or 2016, I want to say it was 2015, Yu-Gi-Oh! switched to doing bandless more frequently than (laughs) what they were doing in the past. And I decided to quit. I started playing Pokemon TCG competitively. I topped a couple regionals there. Never played enough to play in Pokemon Worlds, but I topped a couple regionals. Still then, not a bad, not a bad <laughs> token. <laughs> and then I found Light Seekers just um last year. I was at my Pokemon uh, weekly league, and they were demoing the game. I tried it out. Me and my friends all enjoyed it. I looked at my friends after we played for a while, and I was like, "If you guys want to buy starter decks and invest in the game, I'll invest too." And then we all got up and bought starter decks. I started with Tech. Tech is a really fun one. Yeah, definitely. So from what I'm hearing that you actually got started at your local game store. That was your first introduction to it as opposed to like a convention. Yeah. So that was before PAX East then I'm assuming. Yeah, it was a couple of weeks before PAX East. So we had the Awakening starter decks and the PAX and everything. And then we found out that the second wave was coming out like right before PAX. Mm-hmm. So I had I looked through all the cards in Awakening and all the cards in Mythical and I had a deck that was like all awakening going in the packs. And I knew there was a bunch of cards <laughs> in Mythical that I wanted to pick up. So I was just in a rush the day before um, the first day of packs. Like it was like Friday was my mm-hmm. first day there for the weekend. 
and I was in a rush that day to pick up as many cards as I could to play in the constructed event Saturday. Fair enough. Yeah, that it was an interesting time for all of us. But yeah, that's actually kind of odd that you're one of the first that I've heard that didn't get started at a convention. Like conventions have always been so great for player acquisition for Light Seekers and. and the, the vast majority of the players, whether it be, you know, casual players or top players that in light seekers right now did get their start at conventions, but I'm glad to hear that we can get those people at local stores as well. Oh yeah. Local game stores are like the small community that can branch out a lot better past the people that can't make it to the conventions. And I think that's what they're also really trying to strive right now is to get your light seekers into the LGSs. So that's awesome to hear that we finally have someone who started outside of a convention. That means the game is growing outward of just large communities and stuff. So great to hear that. Yeah, absolutely. But light seekers now came back to your neck of the woods, I believe out in Boston. Yes. This tournament was this actually the game store that you got started at? No. I got started at a store in New Hampshire where I just go for Pokemon. Okay. And the tournament was at a place that I found solely through playing Light Seekers because I heard that there was a scene there. I went to a tournament there a while back, and I found out there was a local scene there, and I started going there. All right. In any case, uh, it turns out this place has brought you some pretty good luck, it sounds like. You took first place this past weekend with a Magrath deck. So that is correct. If you want to, you don't have to go card by card necessarily, but just kind of break down what you can tell me about this deck and like how you play it. So since I hadn't been playing for a while, I had been keeping up with some of the decks that had been doing well, and I had heard Magrath coming mm-hmm. up a lot. And I knew the last deck that I had actually been working on when I stopped playing the game back in October was Magro. And I saw that some of the strategies that people were using with um, running the Crystal Core and having stuff like Tentacles so that they can constantly get their health back up to about 12-ish while putting the Crystal Core back into play and making it hard to kill, that was kind of what I was working on before. But I saw some of the lists that people had been using were pretty different from what i was going with so i tried i tried i tried out some of the stuff that i saw and it felt much better than what i had in mind five months ago <laughs> i mean it sounded like you were on the right track you said you got the tentacles and the crystal core and like you yeah. had the the base foundation of staying alive and getting that micro damage in and just the rest of it needed time to flush out yeah i was running a couple other things like i was also messing around with like Forge Wall as my secondary item because I didn't realize how good things like Duskblade Tome were. So uh, I was messing around with uh, like Forge Wall. I this was before uh, Classic, so I was relying mostly on Night Lurker to trigger my abilities, which is why I had the Forge Wall as opposed to an item with an ability. Sure. So Makes sense. with the format and everything, it was much different than what I experimented with in the past, but it had the same general strategy. So considering that I felt a bit rusty after five months it felt like the right thing to go with yeah if that was one of the last con- tech concepts you were working on it's just it's a nice i guess like training wheel uh ground to get back in using the same here that you were already play testing a little more refined version that you found online that's a great way to jump right back into it as opposed to like a brand new deck that you have no idea how to really pilot it yeah i was on the fence like the whole night before the tournament between whether i was going to play that or if i was going to do tempest and 
I was actually sent a list by um Dratillus, but I didn't have a star sale and I couldn't find one. So I instead of trying to tweak the whole deck to play without it, I figured I should just go with something else. And then I came across the Magrock list and I thought that was something I'd be more comfortable with. That makes complete sense, yeah. Yeah, so, okay, we have, like you mentioned, the, the tentacles, which have become so crucial in so many decks nowadays. Anything I, that uses an ability. Yeah, I have been blown away by how many decks have just, the, the only thing they'll splash in are tentacles, right? But it's starting to feel like a crystal core, right? That you can just throw in any deck and make it work. With, with the uprising of all these new weapons with abilities on them, yeah, I mean, pretty much any time you use a weapon, mm-hmm. there's no reason not to see if you can include three tentacles and maybe just like one Necro Dreadling as a graveyard recursion. Sure. Those permanent buffs are, are, are just great to have on the board at any time because your opponent is always going to want to remove them. Even though they, they might not be hurting that much, especially if there's only one or two of them, but they're just so annoying and they don't go away. <laughs> yeah, when it comes to decks that are pretty much just splashing tentacles, if you have a good amount of other buffs than them removing the tentacles, if it's not a crucial part of your strategy, then that means they're using their buff removal on things that aren't part of your strategy, which means mm-hmm. they have less ways to stop the other buffs that you put out. But the thing you have here with Magrock is he can play those tentacles naturally. So you don't have to worry about splashing them into this deck. And so that gives you so many more options than for, well, if you wanted to splash something else in, which you don't actually don't at all. Do you like you have, you have two other items, but you just use them for abilities. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it looks like Duskblade Tome is just card draw, and Nitro Hammer is just a really nice three damage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Nitro Hammer, especially um, when you have the Shroud and Night Out, boosting up the Tentacles and the Dust Down Assassin, off of Nitro Hammer, you can do large amounts of damage in one turn. Most of the times that I would put down Shroud of Night would be I'd have one Tentacle in play with another one in my hand. So I would put down the Shroud of Night, they would be unable to attack me. And then the next turn, I play the tentacle, gives me an additional action, and then I use Nitro Hammer, play a Dust Town Assassin to copy the Nitro Hammer, and off of those two actions, I get 27 damage before any reduction that they have. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. I love little, just, I have to imagine that's not too hard to set up either, right? Every game that I yeah. saw Shroud of Night, I either set that up or I was in a bad position so I didn't play the Shroud of Night. It's sure. pretty easy to get off. Yeah. Those are the combos that I like to see. Is not something where you need six cards to make it work, right? It's basically once you get the Shroud of Night, you can make it work. A big thing that I felt with the deck, especially after round one, because like round one I got destroyed by Zeff, but after that I kind of felt... With the ability that Magrock has to stay alive in that, like, 18 and under health range, mm-hmm. between, like, the Crystal Core, the small healing from Dust Clade, when you get really well using your ability, I felt like with how much ability you have to survive, 
you can afford to take a lot of hits. You can afford to take a lot of damage. So you can have a lot of turns where you just Duskblade, draw one, and then either play one card or just skip your second action, and you just accumulate a large hand size game one. And then, like, games two and three, you have to play around Jester and Charger. But if you predict when they might want to go for those cards and you get down to Shroud and Knight first, then they don't have the option to do that anymore. And what I did a couple of games was playing the Shroud tonight before I had any tentacles and then playing a tentacle with it out and doing maybe like 12 damage that turn, then the next turn putting down the second tentacle and ending the game there. That just goes to show that Magrock's not only survivability in the late game can do nice really ping damage, really stay at that nice 12 range like you were saying, and then just like blow you out out of nowhere after they're like, no, you can't kill me yet. You don't. You can try. You can try. <laughs> And then you come out with like a, a sledgehammer and just clear clean the game out. No, no a, a nitro hammer. A, oh, Matt, way to one up me there. <laughs> that's that's really interesting that those those kind of plays exist in this very controlly micro damage micro healing deck that you still have the potential of a big swing turn. Yeah, that's not something I would expect to see when like the bulk of your damage is coming in twos and threes typically. Until it gets, you know, magnified by something like Shroud or Knight. But when you're saying, you know, I'm hitting with the Nitro Hammer over and over, I'm using the tentacles over and over, yeah, you don't expect to get hit for 27 in a turn. But it can be done. One of the other things I like to see in here are the, the three steadfast beacons. One, did you get to play them a lot? And two, what kind of situation are you looking for to get out of them? So after this past weekend, I want to say Steadfast Beacon is one of my top five favorite cards in the game. <laughs> That's what I like to hear. Because I played at least one every single game this weekend. Mm-hmm. Like when you just have one, it really hurts against it really hurts aggro players because everything they're doing, they I take one less from, which adds up over time. Oh yeah. And on I, top I mean, of that, that every it's time essentially attack, the forge wall, right? Yeah. And every time they attack me, they take one damage. And an interaction I saw early on in the tournament, it was like round one or two, I watched the other two Magrock players playing in the mirror match. And one of them had a beacon out. He was at like seven health, and he got attacked. So the beacon does one damage to the opponent, and because you're doing damage and your health is under 10, you get healing off of that. So that's another another thing that because they're attacking you and you do damage during their turn, it further increases your survivability because you're getting two healing off them attacking and you take one less damage from that attack as well. Yeah, if you're below 10, it's essentially like if they attack you, it's three less damage in a sense because you do the healing before you even take damage. So Steadfast Beacon becomes almost a a perma... um, What's the the mountain fort? It almost becomes a permanent mountain fort as long as they're yeah. attacking you. It became a card that a lot of times people would try to get rid of them immediately because they mm-hmm. understood how good it is in the late game and also having multiple stacks up. So a lot of times I'd use that to bait out buff removal so that they wouldn't be removing the tentacles as often. And also just using multiple of them so that if they do remove one or both, not only are they taking the damage and not removing my tentacles, I get to draw a card off of it. Yeah, there's basically nothing bad about Steadfast Beacon. Oh, no. no especially if you got two of them out. Like, two of them just makes it even better, because then you start drawing cards. Mm-hmm. Like, they only, they only get better the more you have them out. And if they're, like you said, they're killing your tentacles, they're leaving your beacons alone, which just builds up your value for 
getting that big swing turns later in the game. Yeah, and and unfortunately for your opponents, like the beacons are one of those things. I, I that I feel it's like okay, you let one sit out there for a few turns, and like maybe it's just because it's by itself and you want a second one to remove or something. But even if you you have to, if you're playing into it, it's going to hurt you. If yeah. you're if you're not if you're just leaving it alone and not attacking so you don't set off the beacon, well, that's good for you as the Magrock player. Because it's like, well, okay, they're not going to touch me. Great. But then eventually you're going to get to the point where you put another one out. And now it's like, okay, now what do I do? It's like, do you start attacking at that point? Or do you now have to wait until you can remove both of them? Or like, it just does not turn into a good situation any way I look at it. Yeah, I 100% feel it's probably the best buff to play early in the game in the deck. If you're just putting one buff out mm-hmm. while you're just using your dust glades and slowly drawing through your deck, if you just want to put one buff out just to have something, it's the best one to put out in the early game. While also in the late game, it has so much value because like I was saying before, it gives you a card that does damage during their turn, which makes it even harder for them to kill you. Oh, yeah, I completely agree. Would you would you say that it's it's even better than a mountain fort early game as well? That's hard to compare. I Personally, if I'm just putting the one down, I think if I have both in my hand, most of the time I'd play a mountain fort first okay. because, just to see if they remove the mountain fort. And a lot of times if the mountain fort stays, I'd put a steadfast beacon next to it. Sure. Kind of see if you can bait out a buff if their consistent yeah. buff goes down. a lot of the times that seeing the mountain fort with the steadfast, people will immediately remove those. If they have the bait, the buff removal. So it's just, I use those two together, one and one, just as a way of uh, baiting out removal. Very tricky. Very tricky. So do, do you recall during the tournament who or which other heroes you had you had to play personally? Round one, I played against Zef, who was using Salini. Love his list. He, <laughs> uh, I think everyone does. <laughs> yeah, he beat me 2-0. Like the first game, I thought I, I thought I had it, and then he just dropped one card that I completely forgot existed, and that one card just won him the game. <laughs> <laughs> and then game two, there were three crucial turns where he m- predicted what I was about to do on my turn and had a way to counter it. Like there was one time where we both had like fifteen card hands, and I was about to jester him. I had both a jester and a charger in my hand. I was going to jester him, but he chargered me. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then later on in the game, there was a point where we both had massive hands again, and I was about to charge him, but he put down a subjugator. Oh, no. And then I don't remember what the other one was, but there was another turn where he knew what I wanted to go for, and he was a turn ahead So I just of me mentally, so I just couldn't do what I wanted. Sure. And then round two, I played against Spike Chief Jalokia, the one that um you get yep. rid of an item equipped to deal five damage. Oh, yeah. Unfortunately, he had to leave early, so he had to drop the tournament. But game one, he realized he had a side deck card in his main deck. Ooh. Oh, and then okay. Game, and then game two, he put down Treetop Tribunal, and every turn I used Duskblade Tome, so I wouldn't let it rotate. <laughs> <laughs> That's just got to feel really nice on your part. You're drawing a card and literally just making a 16 damage buff sit dormant. And then round three, I played against Tetra in the Magrock Mirror. 
Both were some pretty interesting games. I remember the first game, I just had a stronger opening hand than him. I can't recall what my opening hand was, but I had a stronger opening hand, so he was behind the whole game. I think I just opened with um, an Abyss Hoarder in addition to the Blacksmith. Oh, okay. I think I drew into a second Abyss Hoarder early, so I had I was drawing three off my Dust Glades, so I just went through my deck way faster than him. And then game two, I sided in the Gurgling Oozes along with like Jester and Charger, and the Gurgling Oozes were slowing him down a lot. Multiple times he had to use his buff removals on those as opposed to removing tentacles. So I got a lot of value out of those and was able to win that game. That's a really nice tech. Did, were you were you anticipating a lot of buff-heavy decks? Is that why you included two Gurgling Oozes and not just one? I mean, like I was saying before, I saw that Magrock was doing well, and I figured I might run into the mirror match once or twice. So I, and I figured there might be a couple other buff-heavy decks so I just thought it would be a good inclusion. And that's, a, it that's a smart move. It be valuable. So now the key question that I have to ask everybody, because a lot of people aren't familiar with side decking, especially if Lightseekers is like their first TCG that they've ever played. So buff heavy deck, you know you're playing against. You put in two Gurgling Ooze. What do you take out? I think when I was playing against Tetra, I took out a single Steadfast Beacon. So I still had two in the deck. Mm-hmm. I don't remember what else I took out for the other Gurgling Ooze. And I remember for Jester and Charger, I took out the two Umbron Barkeeps. That was usually the first card I took out when I side decked. Okay. And in That's... some matches, I cut one of my Necro Dreadlings because I played two. I would In some matches, I would take one out and play with just one game's two and three. No, that makes sense. I mean, if the if the games are going slower, Umbron Barkeeps aren't really going to be beneficial. You're drawing at a good pace, so you don't need to catch up to your opponent. So that's a, that's a decent one to take out. The Necro Dreadling, I mean, yeah, you just have to make sure that you get value out of your your deck as a whole because you lose Graveyard Recursion. But if you're adding yeah. in cards to disrupt your opponent, that's another really knowing, good one to just sideboard. So, Knowing that I only had one, I was a lot more careful with what I played it to make sure that usually I got back two tentacles. And I used the Necro Dreadling as my first action to give myself a chance to draw into those tentacles the same turn just to get to them faster. Smart moves. Smart moves. Also, round four, I played against a Tempest. And okay. game one, he came out swinging fast. <laughs> and, uh, I want to say in like do. three turns, I was at like 15 health or something. And he got to the point where I it got to the point where I think he had the potential to kill me on his next turn. And I, du- I think I either already had it in hand or off of Dustblade, I hit a Blacksmith, so I put down the Crystal Core, and I put down, like, a Steadfast Beacon. And then he managed to trigger my Crystal Core. No, he got me to one health without trigger- triggering the Crystal Core because he um, miscounted damage off of, I can't remember the name of the combo, Quantum Loop. He played Quantum mm, Loop, and yep. he miscounted oh, the okay. damage off of it. That's because, a tricky one. And because of like Steadfast Beacon, plus I had a Mountain Fort that had already been triggered like three times, which <laughs> took one of the hits of two. Yep. So I survived with one health without the Crystal Core triggering. Oh, got back man. up, got back up to about twelve. I think he triggered the Crystal Core once, and then I put it back down and just managed to get my health back up and won the game from there. That's just, then, that's just impressive that the deck can do that. It can come back from one health. <laughs> <laughs> and then game two, by the time I started uh, really getting damage on him, I was still in the 20s in health, so I kind of just, I, I remember kind of just running away with that one. Fair enough. Yeah. 
in top four, I played against Frank Stir in the Magrock mirror match. Okay. Okay. Game game one, it got to the point after probably like seven or eight turns where we were both in the low twenties in health. And I drew my card and I drew into a font of misfortune because I made a mistake with um taking out side deck cards the pre- after the previous round. That was supposed to be an umber on barkeep. So I got a game loss for that. Oh, okay. Then game two, just like I did against Tetra, I sided in the two gurgling oozes with the Jester and the Charger. And what I did at that point, when I eventually played down Shroud of Night, I had a Tentacle and a gurgling ooze in play, solidified them with the Shroud of Night so that he couldn't attack me. So he couldn't attack or buff. And I killed him before the Shroud of Night expired. By the time the Gurgling Ooze expired, I put another one down just to be safe. <laughs> so he couldn't put down any buff removal or anything to try to survive. Yeah. And then game three, because I noticed that he was playing around both Jester and Charger the whole time. I took out the Jester and put in the Night Lurker. Oh, okay. And my opening hand game three was Night Lurker, Abyss Hoarder, Abyss Tentacle. That just so, that feels good. It's <laughs> so a nice way to start, yeah. I had a lot of early advantage. I kind of just uh, steamrolled him off of having the Night Lurker so early. And then the finals, because top four was uh, the three Magrocks and then one Arkmoss. Mm-hmm. So I was facing the mm-hmm. Arkmoss in the finals. Game one, I remember having a pretty good opening hand. I went through two Shadow Puppets in the early game, and I knew I had to save the last one for late game because he was going through his moss ridges he recycled them and all that it got to, when i drew the third shadow puppet i think he was in the like mid-20s in health he stayed at like 29 30 for a while while he was whittling me down i remember he had the moss ridge on his second or third corner when i put down my shroud of night it was on the second corner i did a bunch of damage to him through it i think i did like 10 11 damage or something and oh, then wow. it rotates to his last corner and I want to say he put he either played a normal buff or a combo buff or something. Is So then my turn goes, because Moss Ridge is on his last corner. I knew he had another one in his hand. I had the Dust Talon in my hand, two tentacles down. So I, I just Shadow puff it, away, puff it away, both of his buffs, and then I played the Dust Talon to copy the Nitro Hammer, and that ended the game. That'll do it. And then Man. game two, I sided in the two Gurgling Gooses again, sided in the Night Lurker, and I don't remember what else, but I know I sided something else in. Maybe a font of misfortune or something. But okay. a few turns into the game, I put down the Night Lurker. And then similar to the previous round, I kind of won that game off of Night Lurker. Because I knew he was main decking a Battleborn Oppressor, and I figured he would side deck another. So he was really um, trying to make sure that I, he got rid of my items. So I knew I needed to have the Night Lurker in there. So I had some way of doing abilities to get my damage off. Makes sense. And he got rid of... The Duskblade Tome pretty early, and then I started using the Nitro Hammer a bit. He was still pretty high in health when he got rid of the Nitro Hammer. I think at one point he got back a, a Reckless Spirit, and then I knew I needed to keep Night Lurker on board, so I used that opportunity to play the Shroud of Night. And then I just saw under Shroud of Night did Night Lurker ability and then Dust Town Assassin to copy the Night Lurker to seal that game. Nice. Kind of a, more of a mental mind game that one. You you knew he was going to side deck in a second oppressor for both your items, so you, you had to bring in the night lurker. Saved it for all the buff removal being gone. It's like it sounds like a very methodical game that went on between you and um, lurker. 
Very, yeah. very good one to watch. I felt like um, he put a lot of pressure on me in terms of like thinking how to do certain things, especially showing me a Battleborn Oppressor game one and using it when he did to get rid of my Duskblade. He definitely didn't make any of those games easy on me. I'm sure that's how he made it to the finals as well, past all the other Magrex. Yeah. I was actually, I was talking because Arkmos, it, it shuts hero powers down with their buffs. And from what I understand, he had like 15, 20 buffs in the deck. Did I that heard he had 20 in 20? Oh, man. That, did, now, I'm sitting here thinking, like, that's with Magrox, mainly, uh their survivability in the, the late game being down to 10, being able to kind of stay within that range because of the hero power. I, I almost thought that Arkmos had a better advantage in that game because you wouldn't be able to micro-heal. They would have just got a lot of consistent damage down. Was that ever the case that you thought that uh, your he might shut down your hero power and kind of windle through without you healing back up? Was that ever a, a thought, so, or were you able to control his board pretty well? The way I thought about the matchup beforehand and also the way I uh, ended up playing it out was most of my buffs are permanent, while a lot of his buffs, like the ones that he got the damage off of, Marcerous Defender, a lot of those rotate. And... I figured if I could use my Shadow Puppets mostly to get rid of his buffs that don't rotate, that being the Insect Swarm, then not only would getting rid of Insect Swarm allow my Mountain Forts to stay longer, because Insect Swarm's amazing against Mountain Fort, (laughs) but also I'm taking buffs off of his board and making it so that for the most part, his only buffs that aren't getting removed are the ones that are rotating, so they're eventually going to be off the board. For most of the game, both games, I had more buffs than him, just because most of the buffs that he had that were sticking were the ones that rotated and most of my buffs are permanents. No, that makes a lot of sense. And on top of that, his deck, he didn't really apply enough offensive pressure to the point where I needed Magrock's ability to survive. Oh, okay. So even if my ability did get turned off, I felt comfortable in those scenarios because he didn't put a lot of offensive pressure. I didn't need to heal much. So... I wasn't. I feel like Magrock has a pretty favorable matchup there. Yeah, Interesting. So basically, like I think between your steadfast beacons and mountain forts, they're going to keep you safe then. Yeah. Yeah, and his limit of only being nature of only having one buff removal as opposed to a lot being able to remove two at a time that probably helps you in your advantage as well. Yeah, that was another factor too because I'm able to remove his buffs at a quicker pace than he can remove mine, and mine stayed longer on average, on top of that. So it was a lot. It was pretty hard for him to keep more buffs out. And on top of that, game two, I had the gurgling oozes as well. That's awesome. That was a great game, yeah. Yeah. All right. um, So you did actually end up playing both of the other Magrocks that were there. Do you know, did you ever discuss it with them or just see it throughout the games? Like, were your deck lists pretty similar or I completely identical or do you know? The big differences that I noticed was I believe they were playing an Abyss Weaver. I saw that a couple of times. I didn't see them see it while playing against them, but I saw it when they played each other. Okay. Okay. And instead of Shroud of Night, they opted to play Ghostly Grasp. Oh, okay. So they chose more graveyard recursion as opposed to uh, damage increase. Yeah. I think the Ghostly Grasp is good because it lets you get your tentacles back faster and get them back into play. Mm-hmm. But I feel like the utility that Shroud of Night provides with allowing massive damage output while also making it so that they can't attack you, protecting your buffs against everything that doesn't have Thunderslug or Marybard, I feel like that is just more valuable overall. 
Well, that makes complete sense. Yeah, I think it proved itself. <laughs> One other question I have about the combos or at it. Obfuscation. Like, obviously a great card if you can get it to work. How often do you actually get it played? I think I played it a few times during the day. Usually I would lock in like a steadfast, I try to lock in like a steadfast beacon and a tentacle would be my goal. I know one time I locked in like a steadfast and a unruly mob, but that was the game where um, it was a game in round two where he had a side deck card in his main deck, but I locked in beacon and unruly mob with it. Okay. Which meant every time he attacked me, he was going to take two instances of one damage, and he could only <laughs> yeah. attack once. Oh man! Yeah, that was the entire shut down game and yeah. aggression. Yeah. Wow, that's fantastic. I, I love when cards like that actually work, but it's one of those you know kind of oddball four cost combos that you just never know how often you're actually going to get to play it. So now I got to ask here, also, yeah, in this deck, mumbles. Obviously, you said you played it and you were able to lock in two buffs. Is there ever like an instance where just locking in one buff is worth paying for a four-cost combo? Or do you like, if you lay it, you have to lock in two buffs, otherwise there's no point in laying it? I usually try to hold on to it to try to lock two in, because it feels like a lot of times, if I only have one on the board, they're probably not going to use a buff removal on it anyways. And on top of that, since Oxfordication pays for all of my other buffs it has a lot of utility keeping it in the head in the hand makes sense makes sense yeah okay i think the most underrated combo that i had in the deck was uh poison spray just being able to put out eight damage and reduce their healing especially i think i played it multiple games that i played in the mirror where i try to put them in that like 12 range of health and keeping it on top of my discard would basically mean they wouldn't be able to heal so at that point, if I'm chipping away with them with my abilities, even if they chip damage ba- me back, they're not going to get their healing. No, that's a really nice kind of game ender. If they're if they are playing a more defensive style and they're like healing a lot, if you can just slam that down, prevent them from healing. Especially like you said, if you can just nitro hammer tentacle into a, a uh, dust clade assassin, the nitro here tentacle. That's what is that? Five plus eight. That's thirteen damage right there after yeah. the eight damage beforehand. Like that's pretty good game ender. Yeah, I, I've always kind of felt that any cards that, you know, reduce your opponent's healing have kind of been underrated. But I think that's because a lot of them, like, I mean, Poison Spray, it, it has to stay on top of your discard, which people are starting to figure it out more and more now how to make that happen. I mean, that we have cards that, you know, when they get discarded, they go back into your deck. Or uh, if it's, in this case, you know, just you have plenty of ways to deal damage yet just using abilities. In that case, it brings a whole lot more value to something that just needs to sit on top of your discard. Yeah, it essentially just doing eight damage, making it so that they can't heal, hit like Magrock won't heal them at all. It will pretty much force them to do what they can to make sure it's not on top of my discard. So if they have a buff removal, they're almost always using in that scenario. Or if they have some other way of taking it off the top of my discard, they usually do that. I just like cards that force my opponents to respond to it mm-hmm. or to be severely hindered if they can't respond to it. No, Those cards are becoming more and more prominent and actually very strong in this new play of game that as we're seeing more decks become more well-developed, they're very fun to play with and very difficult to deal with. All right. I think that is just about enough for today. Mumbles, if... 
anybody would be interested in uh, talking to you about Lightseekers, talking to you about this deck in particular, about your experiences, is there a good place they can get a hold of you? You can find me on Twitter at JustJoshlo. My name on Twitter is Mumbles, but my at is JustJoshlo. And if you're in the Lightseekers Discord, you can find my server nickname is Seeker Mumbles. Wonderful. We'll have both those in the show notes for you if anybody's looking for them. But Mumbles, congratulations once again Thank on you. your win. Yes, very well done. It sounds like you had a great time, and welcome back to Lightseekers. Yeah, and what a way to come back, too. <laughs> yeah, it felt great. <laughs> Do you have any plans to be at uh, future tournaments right now? Currently unsure. I want to, but for me, it's personally kind of tough to take time off work to travel to stuff. Sure. It's Makes something sense. that's a possibility, but there's no guarantee whether I will or won't. Fair enough. Well, whatever may happen, congratulations, and uh, hopefully we'll get to see you at a tournament very soon. I hope so. And that just about wraps up episode 60 of Need More Buffs. If you want to check out that list that Mumbles is talking about that he used to get to the top in this tournament, you can find that in the show notes at deliverycrab.com slash 060. That's deliverycrab.com slash 060. But if you're looking for a tournament to play in yourself, you're in luck because we are smack dab in the middle of tournament season. Uh, we have so many online tournaments going on, but the next few weekends we actually have two big physical tournaments going on as well. Uh, this coming weekend is the Gold Tier Tournament run by PlayFusion out in Ohio. And then the weekend after that is our Delivery Crab Silver Tier Tournament down in uh, Chicago at TPK Gaming. I will personally be at both of these tournaments, so if you need cards for that day, I, I, I am offering tournament day delivery, so please feel free to get in contact with me, matt at deliverCrab.com. I will go over the details of what you need to do to get you the cards you need when you need them. As always, all our tournament information can be found on the website at deliverycrab.com slash tournaments. I hope to see you at a tournament very soon, but until that time comes, I've got some more deliveries to make.